the first available account comes from a letter that Robert Kuhl written, has written to Dr. Oliver Kuhl. We don't know what their relationship is, but we know that Robert Kuhl is uh, writing to Dr. Oliver from the Bengal presidency. Now, this account tells us that 150 years prior to the 1731 letter, the operation of inoculation was being successfully performed in the kingdom of Bengal. And the method was probably a well-kept, well-guarded secret. The second account, barely two decades later, it comes to us from Reverend Charles Chase. Now, this is a slightly detailed account. This is published uh, in a French tract called Essay Apologetic, and he's writing in support of the smallpox inoculation. What he tells us is that the inoculation was prevalent in Bengal for a very long time. And the variolous material was preserved in a twisted thread that was inserted into a needle, which was then in turn passed between flesh and skin. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you today from Nanawal country. So I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I also want to thank all of you today who've made the time to come here on a Sunday morning. So thank you so very much. The topic today is Shitara, how India enabled vaccination. This is a brief overview of the story that's actually in the book. Today, we are going to look at the background and the global scene. So we'll do that scene setting. We'll understand what the dominant narrative is. Then we will look at India's erased contribution. And by the end of this presentation, we're going to walk away with a new story for ourselves. Now, there's another documentary, as Aparnaji mentioned in the introduction, it's uh, Sushrut and his Samhita, which was a micro documentary that I had done with Nileshji and Sanket Kulkarni. Although we won't uh, touch upon, uh, we won't talk about that much, there's some information from that uh, research work that I will draw upon for the purposes of our presentation. But anyone who's curious, you're welcome to look at the original research and the documents on my website, Tejame Bharat, or you're welcome to look at the documentary on the YouTube channel. Although we're here to talk about how India enabled vaccination, really, this is about so much more than just vaccination. I'm confident that through this talk, you will discover not just the glory of India and the knowledge traditions and the creative genius of our ancestors, but also understand the possibilities that information like this holds for us in the future. The only caveat is we must uh, commit to undertaking Swadhyay or self-study in whatever our chosen field of expertise is. Only then I think India will truly be on the path to becoming a Vishwaguru. So let's jump in, both feet in. Now, prior to this session, if you've Googled that first successful vaccine was developed for which disease? Google will tell you it was for smallpox. And who discovered the vaccine? Obviously, uh, Edward Jenner. So that's the information that comes through to us from all the current websites, World Health Organizations, everyone's telling you that. So before we start with changing that, let's understand a little bit about smallpox itself. Now, because smallpox was eradicated nearly 40 years ago, uh, most of us wouldn't have experienced that, which is a good thing. It was a highly contagious virus and it spread through person-to-person -person contact. Now, the early symptoms were high fever and fatigue, and then a rash appeared two to three days later, particularly on the face, arms, legs, and even uh, in the cavity of uh, your mouth. Now, these 
uh, this rash then became became pus filled uh, pustules and they eventually formed a crust which dried and fell off the virus had an incubation period of 7 to 17 days after exposure and a healthy person could become infected if they inhaled fluid droplets from the infected individual so it's very similar to what we are currently experiencing in because of the covid now a person only became infectious once the fever developed and um, the most infectious period was during the first week of the illness but a sick person remained contagious until the last scabs fell off many survived but turned blind now anyone who survived developed a lifelong immunity from subsequent outbreaks so this is the disease that we're going to talk about now let's find out how long and how widespread this was the first mention of smallpox comes to us 2300 years ago and it was a rash found on three uh, mummies in egypt then by 1600 years ago we have unmistakable written record uh, coming in from china by the 6th century that's 1400 years ago as trade increased between china and korea this disease went to japan um by 7th century the arab expansion took it to northern africa spain and portugal by 11th century the crusades took it to europe by the 15th century it had already uh, come to western parts of africa due to the portuguese occupation by 16th century uh, european colonization and the african slave trade takes this disease to the caribbean central and south america by 17th century it reaches north america and here in australia it came in the 18th century so as you can see this is a disease that is extremely well traveled pretty much to every corner of the world and it has survived for centuries so let's understand the scale about this we're not talking about something that was just experienced in small pockets um in this paper called the eradication of smallpox and overview of the past present and future Donald Henderson gives us an idea that we're looking at 5 million deaths per year and the sources given down there if anyone would like to check that so this is a disease of a significant magnitude now if this was so prevalent for so long and it was so widespread one obviously thinks that surely there was something that someone was doing to treat this so here's what the prevalent treatments were at the time the early european treatments they were a mixed bag with some herbal remedies and cold treatments as you can see one dr sidneham he probably would have been a really popular doctor because one of his prescriptions was 12 bottles of small beer every 24 hours now the second information is uh, the chinese encephalation so the chinese method is mentioned in a book by joseph needham in 1549 and Uh, the situation in china really at that time was no different from what we are currently experiencing because it appears to be shrouded in secrecy and therefore it was difficult to establish what exactly was happening in china or how effective the treatment actually was the third method is the turkish variolation which was first mentioned by dr emmanuel timoni in 1703 now this treatment is mentioned in the letter which is sent to an exiled swedish king which gets translated into french and it's finally printed in english in 1714 so this is the first known account of variolation which was the most successful way to treat smallpox 
at the beginning of the 17th century. Now, what is this variolation, you'll ask? Variolation, also known as inoculation, is a now obsolete method of immunizing uh, against smallpox by basically uh, introducing the infection into a non-immune person. So because this treatment was so successful, it had to be taken across to uh, Europe. So the one person who championed variolation was uh, Lady Mary Montague. Now she was the wife of a British ambassador to the Ottoman court. And she and her five-year-old, she had her five-year-old son variolated uh, back in 1718. After that, London experienced an epidemic in 1721, which is when she had her three-year-old daughter variolated as well. But obviously others in the uh, royalty or the upper class wanted assurances. So Caroline, the Princess of Wales, suggested human experiments. And they were conducted on six condemned criminals. Now we know that these criminals came from the Newgate prison and were from the age group of about 19 to 36. Um, one of them was a 25-year-old boy who had received death sentence for stealing three wigs. So the procedure was obviously successful and uh, those prisoners were pardoned. But that secured the administration of variolation for the adults. What about the children, the prince and the princesses? Well, they had an idea for that as well. They arranged for five orphans from St. James Parish, Westminster, to be variolated. And when these children came to no harm, two of the royal princesses were treated. You see, this new procedure was considered controversial. It was argued by the church that the practice was both dangerous and sinful, as only God had the power to inflict diseases. But over the century, it became a relatively routine approach to protecting people from smallpox. So the upper class were the first beneficiaries of this available treatment against smallpox. It took nearly 20 years before this treatment found its way to the middle class. And it was even longer before it became available to the lowest strata of the society. Then along came Edward Jenner. Now, Jenner was an extremely uh, curious, studious, and an enterprising young man. Uh, he has a fascinating biography, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to read more about him online. So basically, by the age of 13, he is already working as an apprentice to his local doctor. By the time he's 21, he develops sufficient knowledge to start as uh, an apprentice under a surgeon in London. And by the time he's 24, he returns to his hometown and begins practice as a GP. Now, this is in 1773. Now, Google and Wikipedia will tell you that Jenner, even as a young boy, he knew what was common knowledge across Europe. That uh, dairy maidens who suffered from cowpox, they did not suffer from smallpox. Jenner continued practicing medicine in his village uh, until suddenly, 23 years later, he started experimenting with smallpox. And in 1796, he successfully developed a cure in just a year's time, in under a year's time. He promptly wrote to the Royal Society, who rejected his cure. So then he wrote to other doctors and surgeons uh, who gradually experimented with his methods and they found success. So it was because it was a successful cure in 1802, the British Parliament recognized his work 
and they awarded him 10,000 pounds. Such was the significance of his work that five years later, they awarded him another 5,000 pounds and acknowledged his uh, contribution. Now, I'm not speaking today to take anything away from Jenner. It was important for the times that he lived in. What I'm saying is that there's a missing link. And to see this, we briefly need to understand what Jenner actually did. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was common knowledge across Europe that if you suffered from cowpox, you did not suffer from smallpox. So a dairy maiden by the name of Sarah uh, Nelms was suffering from cowpox. What Jenner did was he extracted the pus material from her and injected that into the eight-year-old boy of his gardener, James Phipps. Now, James developed and he survived cowpox. Then what Jenner did, he infected uh, James with smallpox and James failed to develop any infection. So that's when Jenner declared that the cure is now complete. And he had in effect confirmed that if you suffer cowpox, you don't suffer from smallpox. But it wasn't really as simple as it seems. And I think here is an opportunity for us to ask a few questions. If this was common knowledge, as you've already seen that this is a disease that was spread across the world for centuries, why had someone failed to achieve some kind of treatment protocol prior to Jenner? Why did Jenner not look into this despite being a GP for nearly 24 years? He started practicing at the age of 23. He continues med uh, medical practice for 24 years before he actually starts uh, experimenting this uh, with this in 1796 and then finds a cure in less than a year. And basically, for centuries, a problem that isn't solved quickly gets solved. So how is that possible? What really happened? Now, something clearly happened, and that answer comes to us from the underlying Bharatiya wisdom. The missing link comes to us in the form of numerous successful first-hand accounts of variolation and inoculation. Um, let me mention the accounts to begin with, and then we'll talk about what the missing link is. So the first available account comes from a letter that Robert Kould written, has written to Dr. Oliver Kould. We don't know what their relationship is, but we know that Robert Kould is uh, writing to Dr. Oliver from the Bengal presidency. Now, this account tells us that 150 years prior to the 1731 letter, the operation of inoculation was being successfully performed in the kingdom of Bengal. And the method was probably a well-kept, well-guarded secret. The second account, barely two decades later, it comes to us from Reverend Charles Chase. Now, this is a slightly detailed account. This is published uh, in a French tract called Essay Apologetique, and he's writing in support of the smallpox inoculation. What he tells us is that the inoculation was prevalent in Bengal for a very long time. And the variolous material was preserved in a twisted thread that was inserted into a needle, which was then in turn passed between flesh and skin. Now, here we find something very interesting. Some variolous material was preserved from the time of his grandfather and great-grandfather. That is what the inoculator tells us. Now, this, mind you, is a first-hand account coming from an English lady who had her two children inoculated. So... This tells us that India had already a well-developed understanding of preserving and storing 
highly contagious material for generations. Now the next account, the third one, is the most detailed. And this is delivered by Dr. Uh, John Howell. He is addressing the London College of Physicians. And this account tells us that the Brindavan or Banaras Brahmins, they traveled to distinct provinces and they arrived at their destination before the return of the disease each year. And although they arrived in February, they did not begin inoculating until they had assessed the state of the distemper. So what this means is now we're looking at a specialist branch who had extremely well-developed understanding of the seasonal patterns of when the disease occurred. Not only that, they had even a well-developed or a nuanced understanding of assessing the right time to start administering the treatment. Dr. Howell then goes on to tell us uh, the process and the instrument. So the account tells us that um, the, prefer the preferred spot is outside the arm, which is rubbed vigorously with a dry cloth for about eight to 10 minutes. And then 15 to 16 minute incisions were made with a small circle using a tool that was about four and a half inches long. The instrument is precisely the same as barbers use to cut the nails and depurate the ears of the customers. Now, we don't know whether this instrument went on to become the rotary lancet later on. Uh, he also tells us the process that a small wad of cotton charged with the variolous material was moistened with two to three drops of water from the Ganga and placed on top of the wound and allowed to remain in contact with it for several hours. The cotton which the Brahmins preserved in a double calico rag was saturated with matter from the inoculated pustules of the previous years. Now, this is the important bit. He says they never inoculate with fresh matter, nor with matter from the disease caught in the natural way. So what this tells us is that they've had a sufficiently advanced understanding of immunology to know that less virulent strains of the contagion need to be used in the process of variolation. And in the last part of um, this particular account, we have a striking admission that only one in a million failed of receiving the infection. Dr. Howell tells us that this practice of the East had been followed without variation and with uniform success. And it must have been originally founded on rational principles and experiment. This is also where we find uh, the first mention of Shitara or Guttiki Thakurain. Now, this is a thread that we will explore after we've concluded the, dis uh, the discussion around the, the knowledge gap. Having seen these three accounts, the revised timeline that we now get is um, 1796, 97 is when Jenner's already presented his, prepared his uh, vaccination. We have Dr. Howell's address in 1767. Then we have Reverend Chase's uh, essay apologetic in 1754. And even before Jenner's born, we have Robert Gould's letter. And by that admission, by 1581, we were already treating smallpox successfully. So the new picture that emerges from all of this is that it, Indians were successfully treating smallpox for any, for, since ancient time. They had a well-developed understanding of when the disease struck. Um, they had multiple methods of treating it accurately. They had a system to preserve the highly infectious material. 
and they had found an ingenious way to bring all this information together as we'll see shortly. So the obvious knowledge gap that the Bharatiya wisdom filled for Europe or the missing link is this concept of adaptive immunity. Adaptive immunity is the immunity that occurs after exposure to an antigen, either from a pathogen or a vaccination. Now, Bharat and its rich medical advances provided Europe with the understanding that an infection can be introduced in a non-immune person. What Jenner did was that he was able to cleverly combine the common knowledge with this new concept to come up with vaccination as we understand it today. That's what made him the father of vaccination and the father of immunology. But as we've seen that India has long held that knowledge for which uh, he's given the title of father of immunology. Now, what we as well as the world is woefully unaware is that uh, this was just the way the colonial plunder continued, where the knowledge continues to be taken from us without credit. If someone did that today, I suspect um, the plagiarism or the cheating would be called out straight away. Regardless, the Bharatiya knowledge and uh, the Ayurvedic wisdom continues to be used without any acknowledgement. So essentially, the book Shitra is my way of sharing the story with all of you to ensure that we can pass on this knowledge to our next generations. An interesting picture of Bharat itself emerges from these accounts as well. Uh, these are different accounts from the one I previously showed to you. Uh, but it looks like the inoculators were local cultivators. They were both Hindus and Muslims. Even Daivarne Brahmins, who were called as low-ranking astrology Brahmins, they were inoculators. Then in Dhaka, um, which was obviously part of India at the time, garland makers and barbers were also inoculators. Um, in another account, barbers who had the possession of the book called Vasantatika, they were inoculators as well. So now what we understand is, is that India had somehow found a way to not just take that wisdom, but they had kept it simple to a point where anyone was able to follow the rules or protocols and uh, distribute or administer that to people around them. So they had simplified the process and in, the, in that they had made this information or the treatment accessible and available to anyone regardless of their means. So if you did not have the funds of the upper class or the upper caste in Europe, that's all right. You can go to your local barber and get your tikka and you're sorted. So those were just some of the interesting accounts. We'll look at um, one important account, uh, which comes from James Moore. Now, this is where we're going to start uh, talking about Shitra a little bit. So this, in this account, they come to us primarily from the Bengal presidency, where she was known as Guttiki Thakurai. However, in the rest of India, Shitra Devi is known as either Shitra or down south as uh, Mariamman. But what we can say with certainty from this account by James Moore is that the divine worship, the worship of a female deity or the goddess of eruption has been a part of the Indian civilization for a very long time. As you can see here, he tells us um, that the Banaras Brahmins reside during the performance of the operation, the prayers appointed in Atharvabed for propitiating the female deity. But clearly that has been a part of our uh, civilizational heritage for a long time. So now 
when when we look at Sheetala Devi, I'm actually glad that today I'm getting to speak on this particular topic on uh, Sheetala Ashtami as well. Now she has various versions. She is depicted as um, a, a fair complexion in one uh, version where she's wearing either red or light blue robes, minimal amount of ornaments. Um, and in one version, she is also demonstrated as having three eyes. She has a very youthful appearance and she's considered a powerful reincarnation of Durga. In one hand, she holds a pointy broom and in the other hand, she holds a pot. Now, she also has a winnowing fan uh, that sometimes adorns her hair or is uh, in her hands in one of the versions. In both versions, she typically comes riding on the back of a donkey who is her vehicle. Now, it's important to note that the images of devis and devtas that we have, they're multidimensional. So they're open to more than one interpretation. The commonly accepted interpretation is that she carries a pot of water to relieve the patient's fe fever. The broom is a reminder to keep the surroundings clean. It could also be that the pointy broom is used to prick and administer the variolous material as well. The winnowing fan on her head depicts fanning the patients when they're burning with fever. So she's often accompanied by Jwarasura, who's the fever demon, Ola Devi, Devughanta, Raktabati. So these are all accompanying uh, goddesses who, uh, who would be accountable for 64 other different kinds of epidemic. So what we see from this is that the iconography tells us a lot more. Now, we've already seen previously that India had a sophisticated understanding of the seasonal patterns because the Vrindavan Brahmins knew that when the uh, during the hot and dry months, the deaths occurring from smallpox were, were greater and they start to wane off with the onset of monsoon. Now, Sheetar Ashtami or her worship is strategically placed at a time which reminds people about this peril and to take care about um, making sure that you're wearing light clothes, keeping monitoring your temperature, keeping your surrounding clean, things clean and things like that. So once we start understanding our iconography, we suddenly realize that our ancestors were master storytellers and they had captured uh, the entire concept uh, surrounding Shita Devi when they created this goddess of eruption. Now, how were these eruptions identified in our earliest writings? The earliest writings talk about uh, Masurika. Now, if you can read Devnakri, you can probably see it says Masurika Nidanam. Now, this is by Madhavakara in his Grantha Nidan, which comes to us from the 8th century. This Grantha is a compilation of the earlier works of Ayurveda, Raka Samhita, Sushrut Samhita, Ashtanga Radai Samhita, Ashtanga Samgraha, and Sudhasar. It contains an extensive chapter on Masurika. Madhavakara is in turn drawing that from Vagbhata's Ashtanga Radhai Samhita. And that work is said to come to us from the 7th century. Therein he tells us Masurika appearing like coral globules breaks out and swiftly vanishes and dies quickly. So all of these texts identify that as uh, Masurika. And they attribute that to Charaka and Sushrut. In this particular case, we're going to look at Sushrut's work. Sushrut gives us an accurate description. He says, 
the yellow or copper colored pustules attended with pain, fever and burning appearing all over the body, the face and inside the cavity of the mouth are called masurika. Now, Sushruta has called this a kshudraro. So it's possibly it's possible that it wasn't as widespread um, during Sushruta's time. And it did come about to become a major illness by the time we are looking at Madhavakara's and Vaghbhata's work. But you can clearly see that we had a good understanding of smallpox as well as the uh, immunology because Bharat was already administering that successfully, even if we consider simply uh, Madhavakara and Vaghbhata's work. Sorry, that was my uh, graphic picture warning. That that's a young girl who's suffering from smallpox. And this is actually Masur Ki Dal. You can see how, how accurate the description is. So they had kept it simple, but extremely real. So we had taken all of this information and we have generously, generously given that um, to the world. We made it available to everyone. So you remember how we had in earlier slides, there was a mention about Turkish variolation that happened in the 17th century. Well, we shouldn't be surprised because we had started knowledge transfer outside of Bharat for a very long time. So under Khusro I, the Persian doctor Burzao had traveled to India and taken medical books back. The Charak Samhita was translated by the ninth century. Sushrut Samhita was also translated from Sanskrit by the ninth century. Uh, so we had begun the knowledge transfer a long, long time ago. So it should come as no surprise if that presented as um, as a Turkish variolation or any other variation, because the original treatment we can most certainly claim went out of India. I have one more OMG moment to share with you. Using the this is where I'll touch upon the Sushrut Samhita work that I had done with Nileshji. We had. Um, use the triangulation of ancient Indian narratives. So internal evidence from Sushrut Samhita, Mahabharat, uh, and Garud Puran, all three of those were utilized and uh, the dating that we came up with. There's a mention of Sushruta as far back as Mahabharat times. Uh, so it was probably there prior to that. So we have no hesitation in saying, I have no hesitation in saying that Maharshi Sushrut lived during Mahabharat times. Uh, at least 7,581 years ago. So with all this information, now if we revisit our timeline, then the new timeline, the new narrative that we get is that Jenner had the vaccination by 1800s, but by eight, uh, 8th century, we have Madhavakara who was successfully treating that, Vagbata by the 7th century, and Sushrut, 7,000 years ago. So the final picture that emerges is that long before Edward Jenner, Indians were successfully treating smallpox. They had a well-developed understanding of when the disease struck. Uh, they had multiple methods of treating it. They, they knew how to accurately preserve infectious material. And our, our ancestors were master storytellers who had kept it simple and provided the entire concept to us um, as a form of Shita Devi and her worship. 
Now, through, through all of this, another unfortunate picture that also emerges is how the profound knowledge um, systems of Bharat that are foundational to the knowledge of medical advances that we see today have been systematically erased. And what I mean by erasure, let me give you a, just four of those accounts. We have in 1761 an account by Dr. Kirkpatrick, who arrogantly says that though we give entire credit to the English lady, doctor is not a necessary consequence. So really, it doesn't matter that the Indians treated it. What's important is that the English lady took her kids to uh, the Indian doctor to have them inoculated. Then there's another account which says this wonderful invention was found not by learned sons of erudition, but by a mean, coarse, rude sort of people. So by 1758, we have a British columnist writing without any fear or contradiction that England may be termed the native country of inoculation. Now, this is after they have themselves documented that the uh, inoculation does come from uh, Bharat itself. So by the time we come to 1810, the person who is responsible for writing encyclopedias, Sir George Baker, he writes that inoculation was originally received from the hands of ignorance and barbarism. Further saying, Happily, our learned countrymen did not measure the value of the practice by the meanness of its origin, but by its real importance and utility. They became examples for adopting it. They encouraged it to the rest of the world. So these were just a few of the way that Bharat's contribution was systematically erased. So. The more I read, the more I understand, I realize that it is really it's impossible to tell the story of human civilization without some foundational contribution or enabling technology coming out of Bharat. And yet we live in a world where the impossible has become possible. The story of civilization is being told as if Bharat had nothing to contribute. So the book Shitara really is, is an attempt to simply put our version of the story forward. Uh, it's, it's unfolding as a simple day-to-day -day conversation between a grandfather and his starry-eyed granddaughter. And uh, this book is available on Amazon and Kindle outside of Bharat. In, of course, uh, in Bharat, of course, uh, it's Subu publication where it's available as paperback. And I have to admit, I'm overwhelmed by the lovely feedback that I've received so far on Amazon, Twitter, social media. My youngest reader is a seven-year-old person, and uh, the oldest uh, lead, uh, reader is an 80-year-old scholar who has reviewed my work. But anyway, I was delighted that it, it is well-received and it has reached various age groups. So that's, that's the story of Shitara, how India enabled vaccination. And that's it for me. I would like to close by wishing all of you good health and I'm ready to take any questions and comments. Uh, you call this book a new genre. I would like you mm -hmm. to tell a little about this. Typically, when we think of uh, a genre, it subscribes, it's limited to a specific audience. And that is what I meant uh, when I wrote this book. I honestly had no idea that it was a new genre or anything like that. 
I was simply trying to write a story. But as the book went out, I have received such overwhelming feedback. I've actually, there's a handwritten letter that a seven-year-old uh, wrote to me. Or I had a grandmother, she came up to me and said, this is so fascinating that I read that with my uh, young grandkids as bedtime stories. So I think what, what I meant by new genre is that it seems to have become a book that anyone is able to pick up and read. Uh, it isn't too technical in that all of the information that, that I mentioned to you today that was trying to give you a, uh, more like a summary of the informations there. But in the in the book itself, it is like a conversation that you and I are having right now. So it's just a different way of of telling the story. Apparently, the word for it is creative nonfiction. Uh, the fact remains that the Westerners, regardless of whether they consider India barbaric or whatever, you know, they have been able to appreciate facts of value. Okay. But uh, do you see any evidence that these facts of value are actually making it into our textbooks anywhere in our country? If they were, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, but you're right that they have been able to pick up on facts of value and improvise on it. So whether it's in a textbook, that's probably a, it's a longer road. It, I don't think it's there yet, but it might be uh, down, the, down the line. I'm hopeful it will be. Uh, and it's something that probably all of us as as parents have to demand as well. Uh, so there's, I see a role for us in that journey as well. We have to create the demand for this knowledge, for this to become available to the next generation through textbooks and through more uh, credible research avenues. Ma'am, uh, my yes. question was, uh, after COVID, do we see the Ayurveda regaining its uh, knowledge? And my second question is, uh, when Sorry? we talk about after COVID-19, uh, can we see Ayurveda regaining its own knowledge? And my second question is, uh, we have talked about many things that uh, I don't know, but uh, when anyone sees, it would be like it is a conspiracy because we have been many things. Okay, but it's true. So a lot of people have been championing Ayurveda, and a lot of practitioners are the reason who they've kept the practice alive. They've kept the knowledge alive. So there's uh, there's a lot of people who are dedicated to ensuring that Ayurveda continues for the next generation. Uh, I don't think COVID will have had any, uh, what shall I say, detrimental effect in uh, people being able to pursue that. So Ayurveda has always been available. It will continue to make a significant contribution to this cause. Now, your, your second question, sorry, can you just repeat that one for me? I couldn't hear you quite well. The things you explained, so sometimes we yeah. think it's a very long conspiracy because means anyone right. else uh, very long conspiracy because it's uh, you can say uh, we have never listened okay we were so great um, well I suppose that was the way the world was at the time where everyone went out to colonize uh, and wherever they went they could they picked up all of the resources the knowledge and they utilized that. The onus is probably now on us. If we want to tell a new story or a different story, then we need to do the hard work. 
we've all heard that india was uh, a great civilization well it didn't become great just like that it was because people like you and i were participating they were contributing they were doing something of value that made it valuable um so if we want to return to that state we have to now make make the effort we can we can talk about past conspiracies but that wouldn't really help us achieve anything what we have to do is we have to learn and objectively assess the information that's now available to us and see how we can utilize that for the promise of the future in our ancient uh, see sheetala like you said sheetala mata in north we call her sheetala mata and she's supposed to be there we're supposed to especially people with infants or newborn children pray to sheetala mata to protect the child um i would like to know in the ancient texts that you mention and the ancient practices did they vaccinate according to specific diseases or was it a general overall health this thing how did it work because obviously well, the disease names would have been different from what we know them as now that's right and so the the treatment protocol that you see would have been specific to the condition that that they were observing so uh it, there's mention of these these diseases in the ancient texts as well but i think there's a little bit of uh fact finding for us to do for example uh, if if you remember the story of shita putana from uh, krishna's childhood everyone remembers that story if someone were to tell us uh, shitana uh, putana came flying through the air Uh, and she was there to suck the uh, krishna suck the life out of her well could we have been talking about an airborne disease or did shri krishna survive some, something like smallpox we we have to look at these stories a little bit differently long as we continue to look at them as mythology um we will be lost in translation so like what do they talk about any specific diseases or they generally talk about health and event um with that one with the scriptures i have to admit i'm not entirely qualified to make a comment on that so we find mentions of that which requires further study which like i said it falls on all of us to do a bit more research uh, thank you ma'am for this wonderful talk uh, i would like to ask uh, uh if you find any differences between the current form of vaccination which is done and the inoculation which was used to happen in ancient india yes there is a difference between inoculation um and variolation and the vaccination as we see today so the point i have tried to make throughout the presentation is that the inoculation or the variolation presented the enabling technology which then went on to take a different form of vaccination so the world view that was at the time uh, is uh, in europe they considered uh, because storing smallpox the virus itself it was considered a highly uh, risky or contagious virus that was a risky procedure in itself so what happens when we come through to vaccination is that the virulent strain becomes uh, less uh, less virulent and therefore there is a difference yes so the the fundamental point of this presentation is that india provided the understanding on the knowledge that enabled uh, jenner to be able to make the advances that he did and which is going back to the point that ramkrishna ji originally made that they do appreciate facts 
which we have to be just as studious and we have to make the same effort now in terms of understanding the wisdom and finding how we can make our wisdom more applicable this is about uh, dating of sushruta which is uh, which you said is on the basis of the mahabharata but uh, yes. i mean even with the critical edition of mahabharata it is very clear that multiple layers have been added at multiple times so it might not be easy to consider the mahabharata as a monolithic whole and then infer the date of shushruta from that mm-hmm. uh, or have you actually done this uh, studied these layers and then said that the chronology is the way it is in mahabharat uh, at one point there is an entire chronology which does mention sushrut as one of them so it is safe to assume that he was there at the time of mahabharat and then the dating hinges on his research work my question is uh, is uh, we are we taking this pandemic as very unserious way because uh, before uh, i have when i have studied all the book before pandemic they were very hard and this is we can say it's not too hard to humanity i think he meant that uh, the pandemics that happened in earlier times were very severe and this time do, do you think it is as severe as that is that your question devansh just nod your head i think every pandemic is serious anywhere where we experience loss of life um, is serious what makes it different uh, or challenging is the time and place that people experience uh, that in what i think we have on our side with the current pandemic is uh, is that we are at a point in time where medical science has advanced significantly and the ability for us to deliver the treatment uh, is i suppose uh, more sophisticated than what would have been available to our ancestors i have a question regarding the instruments of variolation is uh, i mean while it's good to say that people were doing this how did they actually clean those instruments or did they do it with uh, you know sort of slivers of wood and then throw it away what was the method to avoid cross that, infection that doesn't come across in the accounts that i have uh, studied so far so i don't have a clear cut answer but it is safe to estimate that fire would have played some role uh, in the sterilization and since it is called tikka and now injection is also called tikka it could have been something piercing the skin or going directly to the blood i'm not sure so this would be the kind of research that i uh, i would hope that someone from the medical or the clinical background will will take on <laughs>